Let us open the scriptures to the book of Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to continue our series in this and um, this will be the last of a series. And so we trust that God will speak to us. You know, a great song that we sung just, just now and um, a really a prayer that the Lord would open our ears and our hearts to receive his word and, uh, and as Peter's prayed uh, that also we can say amen to that. But let's open the scriptures together and read them and we're going to pick up at verse 22 of chapter 3 of the book of Colossians and we'll go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of, your, of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and, without, and, that, without, that, and, sorry, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Very practical section of scripture here and um, all through here we have been looking at practical aspects of what it is to be a Christian and, um, and and this series that we have looked at is living the changed life and today is the changed life in the workplace. Now every single one of us to some degree or other are involved in this. Some are involved obviously in a nine to five and some are involved in 24-7 as they care for home and family and so forth and um, some are between jobs or looking for work, um, but whatever, uh, we're all involved in this. And as I was thinking about this text and this section on slaves and masters, which we'll look into, I've come to the conclusion that when we become Christians, when we become believers, far too many believers consider this change in their lives this transformation as we can call it merely as a past event or something that they can look back to something that people might even say oh yes I'm a Christian because and they remember back to a time when they made a profession or whatever or they went forward in an older call or they signed a piece of paper or whatever. And, they, and that way they consider it as a past event. I'm a Christian because of. That's the proof. But being a believer is more than a past event, right? It's an ongoing experience. The new life of the believer, yes, it begins with a past event. That's from our perspective. From our perspective, it begins with a past event. And some of you may remember the time when you came to Christ. I can't put my finger exactly on the day or date. So I'm not too worried about that. But you may remember it. That is when we trusted in God's rescue mission, as it were. 
We trusted in God's rescue mission and sending His Son to die on the cross for our sin and to deliver us from the wrath of God against our sin. And so it is true in a moment of a time upon faith in Jesus Christ we were, as Colossians 1.13 tells us, on that moment in time we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. But that event, that event of trusting Jesus Christ in the past will always have ongoing effects in our lives. It will usher in God's transforming work by His Spirit, His indwelling Spirit in our lives. So in other words, that past event is just the beginning of better things to come. So being a believer in Jesus Christ means that our whole perspective on life and all that life brings, it will experience ongoing change as the residing Holy Spirit conforms us to God's way and God's design on how to live. And that's what Romans 8 and 29 tells us. In other words, those who genuinely trust in the Saviour for their salvation will experience and they will long for ongoing change. You see, the believer is a person who authenticates his or her salvation through the experiences of life. They live changed lives. They do. And so that is what Paul has been teaching us. The Apostle Paul has been teaching us in this letter. And we have looked at what the changed life of the believer needs to change to in order to give witness of this miraculous past event, if you want to put it that way. And if there's one place on earth that the Lord wants the experience of personal faith in Him seen and witnessed, it's in the home, folks. It's in the home. And that's what we've been looking at in this series so far, in the last few sessions. We have seen what a God-designed marriage needs to look like and should look like and should change too. We've seen how Christian parents and their children are to relate to one another in the home. We've looked at that in some detail. But now he moves to another area in the ancient Roman Greco home and that is how or the way that believing slaves were to respond to their masters and how Christian masters were to respond to their slaves. He pinpoints this area. In other words, the changed life of the Christian must be seen in the workplace. And I do hope I have your attention on this because this is very applicable. Because just as the slave-master relationship of ancient times, as you can imagine, had heaps of room for abuse from both parties, and as you well may know, so too has the modern employer-employee relationships of the day, right? And so this is how I wish to apply this text this morning because how we conduct, listen to this, how we conduct ourselves in the workplace is of vital importance to God. It is, it really is. Because that is where we reflect Him most. Probably more than any other place on earth outside the home. 
even coming to church. Phew, that's only what? Some of us, not enough, but maybe an hour a week. Now I know that some here are retired, some here are mothers at home, some are looking for work, and you may be thinking that this really text, uh, this text is really not too applicable for me, but this text here addresses more than those currently working at a nine-to-five job. Understand that. These words instruct all of us, not only about working conditions and how to treat our bosses and vice versa, but it instructs us about the very attitudes with which we live and how we approach everything we do in life. So the first instruction Paul gives is employees, listen up. Now just to go into a little bit of background about this slave-master relationship of the, this Roman Greco culture, it was a normal part of Roman culture. Matter of fact, slaves were integral part of Rome's economic infrastructure. That's what Paul speaks into here. And the interesting to note, we will note that Paul does not jump up and down about this. He doesn't jump up and down condemning slavery, but he, what he does, he speaks into a culture that accepted slavery as normal and necessary and which was also protected by the law of the day. And at the same time, neither, do, neither does the apostle, the apostle Paul condone it. So he doesn't condemn it and he doesn't condone it. He knows very well, just like we all do, of the evils of culture. And therefore what Apostle Paul does, he speaks the gospel into people's lives knowing that this is God's power unto salvation. Because the gospel changes people from within. Good lesson there. We're not called to redeem the culture. We're called to witness to individuals so that they might be saved and regenerated by the Spirit of God from within. Redeeming the culture, I might say, that's God's work. And it's not going to happen in our time. It's going to happen in a future time when he sets up his millennium reign to rule and reign. And you want to hear more about that, you come tonight. So we're not here to redeem the culture. Matter of fact, we're told the culture is going to get worse and worse as the days go on. That God's power of salvation is through the gospel. As a matter of fact, as we think about Paul's attitude towards slave and master relationship culture, remember the book of Philemon, that little wee book? Philemon was a Christian, he was a believer, and more than likely saved under the Apostle Paul's preaching. But he was a master, he was a wealthy man and he had slaves. The Apostle Paul didn't tell him, okay, follow him and now that you're a Christian, get rid of all your slaves. Pay them all off, free them all and give them a good big compensation package at the end. No, no, he didn't tell him that. Apostle Paul writes to Philemon on this occasion. The reason why his writing is that Paul was in prison in Rome and one of his carers, one of his people that came under his ministry was a man named Onesimus. Now he was a slave that we believe escaped from Philemon. He probably nicked some money or nicked something and he escaped. And in the providence of God, Onesimus came under the sound of the preaching of the gospel and got saved. And Paul says, you take this letter back to your master. 
Okay? You take it back. And this letter to the master was telling Philemon to accept Onesimus back and to forgive him of his prior transgressions and his sin and forgive him and receive him not back as a slave but as a brother in the Lord. That's what the gospel does, right? Changes people from within. As we think about slavery in this first century Roman Greco world, uh, it was most often not a matter of personal choice, as you can imagine. It is recorded, though, on occasions that freed slaves sold themselves back into slavery in order to survive and do something meaningful with their lives. And so don't confuse this kind of slavery with 18th, 19th century American English slavery, right? It's totally different. The first century slave under Romans rule, no matter what his education, and some of them were very educated, by the way, you see, because slaves were from every ethnic origin were in the Roman world. When, Roman, when Rome captured a country, they took slaves. And so they could be black, white, yellow, red. There was a whole host of different ethnic groups that were slaves. Matter of fact, a little bit of discrepancy, but around a fifth of greater Roman's empire were slaves. And they had skills. Many of them were educated, but they were owned by their master. They were considered by their masters as, as financial investments, just like any chattel or like a, a person buying a cow or a sheep or an oxen that could be sold and used to increase the wealth of the master. That's what a slave and how a slave was treated. He had no workers' rights under Roman law. He had no minimum wage. And freedom and wealth, and some of them did become wealthy, slaves, but that freedom and wealthy owner ever came if a successful owner chose to give that to them. And it did happen. You've got to understand that in Rome there was urban slaves and there were rural slaves. And you didn't want to be a rural slave. Okay? You read about the rural slaves. They, they were the ones, they were the underdogs. They were the ones who did all the super menial tasks like working on farms and working in quarries and chipping stone and things like that. They were the rural slaves. But the urban slave... Generally speaking, not too bad a deal. There were doctors, there were lawyers, there were accountants, there were managers of home, there were business managers. And of course, there were others who looked after the master's children and raised them and, and, and others who looked after the home and did all the cleaning and washing. There were those as well. And many of these masters, because of their generosity, struck up a deal. They freed their slaves. And many freed slaves actually own land. And a third of urban Rome's population was made up of, of freed slaves. So it did happen. But as you can imagine, the slave-master relationship, this, this power to the powerful, made it easy for exploitation, right? You can imagine that. It made it easy for abuse of slaves and... and, and and it also motivated, it motivated slaves to rebel against their masters. That was just part of the deal. It was part of the culture. It was, it was built in. It had to be. And so these were the working conditions of an estimated huge part of, of Rome's population, greater Rome, probably a third of it, 
You see, they were the working class people of the day. Like many, many of us here. These urban slaves were mostly owned by wealthy individuals. As I said, they weren't marked out by their skin colour those days. Like we're thinking maybe slavehood in, in, in 18th, 19th century America and England. They weren't marked out by this. They, they mixed and mingled with the rank and file. They mixed and mingled with their masters and with the freed slaves. You couldn't tell one from the other. They dressed the same. They bear, bore no distinguishing marks. And so Paul takes the fact of this slave master culture and he seeks to nurture a new and a changed relationship between converted slaves and their masters and converted masters and their slaves. That's what he speaks into here. Now as we think about this, we can be thankful that in our day working conditions are vastly improved, right? But what Paul says here is sound in its principle that we need to apply to our employee-employer relationship. We have some principles here. And so Paul speaks first to the slaves, or in our case, the employees. And he simply says, do your work. Nothing difficult or too difficult to understand about this first principle. It simply means what it says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. No doubt many converted slaves would have found this difficult to take. Just like many discontented workers today get all feisty if told to do the same. I would imagine it would have been far more pleasing to them if Paul had said, Masters, completely free all your slaves and give them a reasonable compensation package. I guess some of those converted slaves would have loved to have heard that. But that's not what Paul said. Instead, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells them to serve and to obey. That's it, period. In other words, he calls them to get rid of any resentment, any resistance that they might be harboring and faithfully do your allotted task. My dear people, allow me to apply this principle here for there is good reason, I believe, to do so. We live in a culture where generally speaking, and I speak generally, the work ethic of its people has a lot to be desired. You would have to agree with me on that, okay? But this should not be so among believers. The reason for that is that our work ethic speaks volumes about the nature of our commitment to God. It does. Paul says that we should do what is right and be faithful in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. In other words, an employee should serve faithfully in the responsibility he has been given and agreed to do. Today we have work contracts and agreements. It's our responsibility to keep our way into the bargain faithfully and fully. In other words, do your job and do it well. Now, even though the conditions may not suit our preferences, believers have responsibility before the Lord to do the work that He has provided for them. 
Your work must be seen much more than just your job and it's more than just your preference or your choice of work in order to pay the bills. It's more than that. It's more than just an opportunity to advance your career and your lot in life. Far more than that. Even those things, even though those things can and are legitimately covered. But rather, your work is what God has called you to do. Do you realise that? Some of us don't consider this. And I honestly believe that's what Ephesians, um, Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And I'll just read that text for you. Ephesians 2, for, for we are his workmanship, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, listen to this, for good works. You hear that? Now don't get the idea that's just good works as, oh, that's just church stuff. Oh, that's just up here in the pulpit. Oh, that's just witnessing. No, 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 no. Good works is your vocation in life as a believer, whatever that may be. So for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. This is a work that God has called us to do. Now this needs to change our whole or improve at least our whole value and our worldview when it comes to our work situation. It's more than a job. Paul reminds Timothy of our work ethic in, in, in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery, he says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. You hear that? Those who are believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are our brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to him. These are the things you teach and urge on them. So if we don't have this right earth work ethic and do our work with integrity, we run the risk of slandering God's name and the apostles' teaching. Pretty dangerous, isn't it? Paul also tells Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. This is what he says to Titus. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that's nicking things when you think, okay, he won't miss it, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in every respect. My dear people, our work ethic should be so above reproach why? Because that's what the Lord has chosen to use to make attractive the teachings and the truths of His Son, Jesus Christ. He garnishes His gospel, He garnishes His truth with you in the workplace. This means that your workplace is not primarily a place, by the way, or a platform to primarily evangelise people. You might say, what? Yeah, you take that off your primary reason for your work. Now, I'll qualify that statement. When opportunity comes to evangelise, as we've heard with Pete this morning, absolutely, we need to take those opportunities up. 
But don't consider your workplace as primarily a place for me to hand out tracts and preach and teach and, and, and probably even crib a bit of the boss's time so that I can speak to this employee and that employee. No, 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 no. Our work is a place where we adorn the doctrine of God by doing our work with integrity. That is where God is in action through you. That's the primary role of your vocation. We are not to be slackers or those who rob the boss of our time. Why? So that the name of our God and the gospel will not be slandered. You see, the person who works well and diligently, he's guaranteed something. He's guaranteed to be a credible witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? You know, we talked about, we stand on the promises here this morning. Here's a promise. If you approach your work in what we've had so far, you are guaranteed by God that you are a credible witness of the gospel. Don't you love that? Not about what you say. It's how you act and what you do. We're also told, do your work with sincerity. And by and everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service or people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's what it tells us here. See, over the years, I have worked on both sides of the camp. I've been worked as an employee and also as an employer. And one thing that's always stood out was how workers jump to it and get extra active when the boss is around. <laughs> I used to work in the forestry for a number of years where I was a forest manager but we had a boss over us right and some of the boys used to listen out for the boss's vehicle when they came up especially at lunchtime when it was going over and when they heard that vehicle it was action they do this probably to save their own skin to some extent but more than often to win the boss's favour and more than often with hope of a raise in mind or a promotion maybe. There's too much work ethic out there that we rub shoulders with where people have the idea that let's just do what we can and, and, and let's get away with as, doing as little as we can or that'll be good enough She'll be right. doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be right. Just good enough. Or they have the idea that what shortcuts can I take? Well, how can I grease up to the boss? Now, this is, certainly what not, this is certainly not what Paul is commanding here. He tells us our jobs must have our full and best attention. You see that? Pure attitude. That's what it's all about, a pure attitude. Our approach to our work and employers are motivated from what? What are they motivated from? Sincerity of heart. You see that in the text? And that is the pure and right motive. That is where a pure and right motive comes from. And so this requires us all to see and value our jobs as God's provision to demonstrate in our attitude and our work ethic the gospel of Christ. Too often our work is put into a secular box. That happens all the time. And I know what it's like 
day after day, you go to work, you come home, you go to work, you come home, doing the same thing, and it's easy to divorce this, that work from this work, right? It's easy to divorce what we do during the week from the things of the Lord. This is why coming to church is good and coming to prayer meetings is good, going to home groups is good because it all helps us to keep accountable and, and, and to encourage us to, 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 to move on and to, and to walk in faith and by God's grace as we were singing there just before. We need to value our jobs as God's provision. Our work must be never put into a secular box. Another way, people, another way that people and including believers here, can approach their work situation. And this happens far too often. Okay? And I might say, it seems to often happen with more professional people. And for those who are professionals amongst us, I'm not having a go at you. But this is just something I picked up and I see. People quite often approach their work situation in a way that is boastful. With the idea... I'm needed. There is a sense in which workers can put themselves on a pedestal kind of thing, you know, and think, well, this employee needs me. This employer needs me. This company needs my expertise. Makes In fact, I will be doing this company a favour by me working here. Usually underneath that is, I want more. This is just a doorway for further advancement of my career and I want a bigger salary, usually that's underneath it. Do you know what I mean? My dear people, this is not a humble Christian attitude. That attitude is nothing else but self-serving, self-aggrandizing and self-promotion. This yourself should be a warning signal to anyone who thinks like that because there's nothing about humility, there's nothing about sacrifice and serving others in that attitude. There's nothing about demonstrating with sincerity of heart an attitude and a work ethic that what? That adorns and makes the gospel attractive. There's nothing in that. We must be those employees who go all out, not merely to please our employers, but those who from sincere hearts do our work which will please and serve the Lord. That's what it must be. But notice, this attitude does not only apply to our employment. Okay, it doesn't only apply to our employment. What does Paul say here? He says, whatever you do, work at it with all work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, in verse 23. In other words, it's not only how we approach our employment, our places of employment, but it's for the everything that we do. Everything we do becomes a, a visual statement. I was so conscious out there the other day of painting that wall and I am not happy with it. matter of fact, I'm going to take some of it down because it's not excellent. It's not good. So in everything that we do becomes a visual statement that reflects something of our relationship with Jesus Christ. I see Alex laughing there because he knows that wall is not good either. That's all right, Alex. I value your critique. Okay? Everything that we do, it includes the little things as well as the big things in life. So how do we approach our work, folks? our duties, our jobs. Do we go all out with excellence on our minds and finishing well what we have started? Do we? 
We should do. Or do we just give up at the first hump? Or at best only have a she'll be right kind of attitude? Doing your work with sincerity and fearing the Lord will mean things like arriving early rather than late, even when the boss is away. Or striving for excellence. You students here, in your studies, do you strive for excellence? Or do you say, oh, well, as long as I get a pass, that'll be right. No, 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 no. I'm glad to see you resonate with that, Anisha. She's a girl that's going to strive. Okay? Or maybe acknowledging your mistakes. That's what we need to do, don't we? We need to acknowledge our mistakes because it's so easy to make a mistake and then palm it off to someone else on the shop floor or whoever. But no, no, no. It will mean going that extra mile for someone, even when not asked. And doing whatever we do, we need to remember this one thing, folks, how we do it, the attitude we do it in, be it something small or a monumental project, if it's not done in sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, we are serving and we are not serving and pleasing the Lord, but we are only serving and pleasing self. And might I say, that's an idolatrous sin. This brings us to another principle. Do you work, do you work for your serving the Lord? Paul writes here, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see that? In this verse, we can really test ourselves as to where our jobs and our careers and whatever we do fit into our worldview. We can really test ourselves about how what we do fits into God's eternal plan for our lives. And so I honestly believe that for many believers, their work is put, as I said before, fairly and squarely in a secular box and, and that at best is only dipped into maybe on the, for the offering bag on Sunday. We so easily become dualistic in our thinking that my work is purely for paying the bills and paying the mortgage and the holiday and the car, etc. And my boss, the company directors, are the only people really at the end of the day that I'm accountable for because really they are the kind of people, they are the people that determine my earthly destiny, so to speak. Well, listen up, folks, listen up. Never forget that the Lord is over all. He is sovereign, as you have heard thousands of times from this pulpit and from around about. The Lord is over all. And you know what? He is watching my every move. He is noting my every attitude. He is testing the sincerity of our hearts. He is measuring our obedience. All that is too often, I might say, shoved aside in our thinking and our worldview when it comes to our works. People, we need to get this down really good, really get it down good. In our work, no matter what we do, we serve the Lord. And can I ask you, so what's your service record like? What's my service record like? Do we work for our earthly employees? Yes, we do. We absolutely do. But at all times, we need to know that it is from the Lord that we'll receive the reward of inheritance. Did you notice that word knowing there in the text? Knowing that it is from the Lord? 
You see, how you feel about your boss and how you feel about your workplace is secondary. But how easy it is to make primary. It's secondary, believe me. Knowing here, this is about knowledge, this is objective truth here. Knowing that it is from the Lord will receive inheritance. This is what we know. As believers, we know this, right? And if you don't, you need to know it right now. It's from the Lord that you will receive your inheritance. Our worldview must value your work and relationship with employers for the purpose of the Lord promoting and rewarding us accordingly. That's what we're hanging out for, right? It's the Lord who's going to promote. It's the Lord who's going to reward. This is the underpinning objective truth that we know here. Overruling all that we do, whether we're slugging away at the studies or whether we're slugging away in the kitchen or whether we're on the shop floor or in the hospital ward, whatever. The Lord is overall. Folks, our work is not about our earthly paycheck. But in the big picture, which we always want to have in view, it's all about our heavenly one. And I'm hanging out for that. Our faithfulness to our duties, it may gain, our faithfulness in our duties may gain no extra benefit. You may work for years and you may think, oh, I really deserve a pay rise. You may not get that pay rise. But understand this, that God will reward the faithful with inheritances beyond our imagination. Let us knowingly serve the Lord in our places of work, folks. But as we move on and come to the conclusion, we see that Paul doesn't leave it here. He allows us to see the flip side of this working relationship and he has some instruction to employers. He doesn't spend too much time on it, no, neither will we. And um, Paul has only two simple things to say to employers and that is be just and fair, okay? Be just and fair. You know, it's so shameful, isn't it? And I've experienced this even just recently. It's so shameful when you hear of Christian employers who are everything other than just and unfair, just and fair toward their employees. It is so shameful. And I've had to hang my head in shame in recent months upon hearing testimonies, and this is what makes it worse, from unsaved about a Christian employer. Employers need this instruction because in their position of authority, and they do have a place of authority, they are called to what? They are called to represent the Lord in their place of authority. And what is the Lord? He's just, and so the employers should be just. He's fair, and so the employers should be fair. Many Employers forget that representation they have. Christian employees, they forget that representation they have. And also the exemption, the, the temptation I should say, the temptation from a, for employers to extract as much as they possibly can from employees and to push them to unreasonable levels and to deny them reasonable benefits all for a greater profit margin, it, it, that is always ever before them and there's always some excuse of why they do that. My dear friend, the Christian employer is not to be governed by the bottom line profit margin. No way. But rather, whether or not he is a good steward of those whom the Lord has trusted to his care. Because that's what's happened. 
the Lord has given him a vocation whereby he has the responsibility and is entrusted with people under him to manage. And he's going to be accountable, or she is going to be accountable, how they treat those who work for them. But there is a second thing he says to employers. You know, you also have a master in heaven. Same kind of a deal here for the employees, right? As, as the employees. You see, Paul is simply reminding the bosses, the employers, that, that just because you're the boss, just because you're the manager or the general manager, don't forget that you're still working for your master in heaven. He calls the shots and he is the one whom even, no matter how high up the employer chain you are, your business and the way you run it is the Lord's business, so manage it justly and fairly because why? Because audit day is coming and employers will be held accountable. Do you believe that? Absolutely. It's written here the Word of God. You mean to say, what? The way I treat people who work under me? I'll be held accountable? Absolutely. It's going to be a, a judgment seat reckoning. Audit day is coming. And so, may we make the necessary changes that we need to. As we think about this, our salvation and being a Christian is not merely an event in the past where you, tr where you trusted the Lord in faith and repentance, right? It doesn't stop there, does it? No way. It's an ongoing experience, not just merely an event. And this experience involves obedience and faith in every hour, every day, in every relationship, in, in the home, in your workplace. It doesn't stop. And God continued to change us in every sphere of life. And may we as His people be willing to be changed for the sake of His glory for his glory. So that what? So that in obedience, in faith and obedience, we sung that, we're going to walk by faith, we're going to walk by his grace, so that in faith and obedience, whatever we do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen? Take a few minutes just to think and consider your place of work the very vocation that the Lord has called you right at this present time and do some evaluating. Repent if necessary right where you are and may this be a moment where we can move on in God's glory and then I'll close in prayer.